Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, it is the start of a brand new blend of the month here on the Cinema Drip Podcast, as we are taking a look at the work of Wes Anderson this June to celebrate the release of his new film, Asteroid City. How are you feeling, Christian? It's a, a, just an exciting month at the movies in general, so how are you feeling? Maybe not just about our guy Wes, but about movies right now. I am not sure. I've kind of reached a point where I feel like every single year movies are dying, and every single year something is saving movies, and every single year something is reopening the box office, or the box office is back. And I was thinking about this because I'm listening to some podcasts on Across the Spider-Verse and how it's saving the superhero genre. And I'm kind of tired. (laughs) A lot of movies have been saving things recently, be it genres or franchises or cinema at large. I, I, I just... I. Like when Martin Scorsese said that Tar was like the 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 sun that broke through the clouds. He saw the future of cinema laid out before him. And I just I feel like that's one too much to put on a movie. And two, if like the rest of like here's the issue with what Martin Scorsese said: very almost no one saw Tar. So it's just kind of hard for me to, regardless of my thoughts on the movie, it's kind of hard for me to believe it's the future of cinema when very few people have seen it. You want to know the funny thing about prophets, Christian? What's the funny thing about prophets? They're always disrespected in their own time. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus got thrown out of Nazareth, you know? Uh, that's that's true. That being said, Across the Spider-Verse is something that I think is only going to increase in people's estimations and is doing very, very well at the box office. I'm sure it is. And uh, as we may have legislated on this podcast before, Martin Scorsese has earned the right to say almost whatever he wants about movies to Look, me. Look, we, so. we, 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 we disagree on that, but it's, 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 it's not that. It's just that people are... Look, there are movies I like, there are movies I dislike, I don't care anymore what comes out. I'm going to go to watch a movie and I'm going to see whether I like it or not. And if y'all like it or not, that's awesome. Christian, based on that metric, how did you feel about the Pope's Exorcist? I chose to not see it. Disappointing. Yep. Disappointing right there. Alas, we're here. Although I did not hear anyone saying that the Pope's Exorcist had saved cinema. Perhaps Russell Crowe had had some feelings. But we're not here to discuss Russell Crowe, although we may wonder where he fits into our movie for today. Oh we're my goodness, here... yes. Can we play that? <laughs> we'll see, Christian. We're not here to discuss the future of cinema. We're discussing its recent past right now as we look at the beginning of the career of Wes Anderson. And today we'll be looking at the Royal Tenenbaums. What I think is fair to say is his breakthrough uh, mainstream hit. Before the Royal Tenenbaums, his debut was Bottle Rocket, which came out in 1996, and it was not a commercial success, although, speaking of, Martin Scorsese later named Bottle Rocket one of his favorite movies of the 90s. So, it was one of those auspicious debuts that did not make any money, but put Anderson on the map, as well as Owen and Luke Wilson, who co-starred 
in the movie, and Owen Wilson wrote Bottle Rocket with him, as well as the follow-up, Rushmore, which featured no Wilson brothers, although Owen did write it. And Rushmore would be a bigger success for Anderson. It would make almost $20 million at the global box office and ultimately get some awards attention as well, winning Anderson Best Director at the Independent Spirit Awards. Before finally, The Royal Tenenbaums comes along in 2001 and is almost inarguably a hit. It not only is a huge box office success, making $71 million, which is still to date Anderson's second biggest movie by box office margins, but also earning him and Owen Wilson an Oscar nomination for their screenplay, getting in some mainstream awards attention uh, where Rushmore kind of began that for him. The Royal Tenenbaums is his first big awards breakthrough. Christian, what is your relationship to this movie? I know last week you said that you've seen all of Anderson's movies. So I'm curious if you're revisiting The Royal Tenenbaums after checking it out recently, or if this is one of the earlier Anderson efforts you saw, where, where you come in and do the rewatch here. It was when I was purposely trying to fit in all of Wes Anderson's filmography. And this is, I don't know, how many movies does he have? He has eight or nine. Yeah, I think Asteroid City might be 11, actually. Let's let's take a look. Um, if Asteroid City is 11, then this is probably the... Honestly, this is probably the 7th or 8th movie that I saw. Asteroid City is 11, so 7 or 8. Um, it, it, it was... I don't know. It was weird on a rewatch in that I had forgotten how dark this movie is as 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 you may have recalled i i I texted you i forgot that royal tenenbaum is racist (laughs) indeed he is (laughs) not only that but there is you know for our any listeners out there who have dealt with uh, any serious depression or suicidal ideation before there is a suicide attempt featured in this movie not directly shown but we see the immediate before and after so it, it you know, it's it, it's kind of visceral also it's 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 one of the most visceral moments in the movie not just from not just as content of course but how anderson depicts it also how he shoots it there are okay uh I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take over. Talk, keep talking. I I have thoughts I need to sort through regarding this movie because well, I, I, I saw it with the friend who was really really vibing with it. Okay, and and is that indicating that you did not? Is that what you're trying to hold back till we can get into more of a review oriented conversation? I liked it less. I liked it less this time than I did oh, the first time I saw it. Very interesting. Well. I'm not sure where it fit in for me in terms of my journey with Anderson. The first movie of his that I saw was The Grand Budapest Hotel, which I saw in theaters in 2014. And I started going back after that, and I'm pretty sure The Royal Tenenbaums was actually one of the first of his that I saw. So this is a rewatch long in waiting for me, and one where I will say my positive feelings have only grown in estimation. So I'm curious to getting into where where our paths diverged as we uh, revisit the world. This is, this is the most, this is the, the deepest he has gone with themes. I, I I do think this might be the deepest that he has gone with an exploration of romance with an excellent, um, and exploration of the family that he is always attuned to maybe the, uh, like the deepest he's gone with mental illness, which he has explored in other movies. Also the deepest that he has gone with. Oh man, what is it? 
it, it's there's a lot here. There's yeah. there, there's a good chunk to dissect here. Agreed. So just some more quick thoughts about the the facts of the case here with the Royal Tenenbaums. So 2001 release coming out middle of December that year, making sure it could get uh, some Oscar attention, <laughs> which naturally it did. Directed by Anderson, written by him and Owen Wilson. As I mentioned, the final film that Owen Wilson would actually not only collaborate with Anderson on in terms of as a writing partner, but also just the final screenplay he would contribute to as a credited writer at all. So maybe we'll get some Owen Wilson scripts in the future, but we're still waiting for that fifth script of his. And also you never think of Owen Wilson as Oscar nominated Owen Wilson. No, no, you don't. It's, it's funny. Their, their careers are so tied together because everything began for them with Bottle Rocket. It was not only Anderson's debut, but Owen and Luke Wilson's acting debut as well. And Owen Wilson is taking off as an actor, as is Luke Wilson for all that. But Owen Wilson's taken off as an actor at the same time that Anderson is taking off as a filmmaker. And I think part of the reason they have not continued to collaborate in a writing capacity, at least, is just because Owen Wilson became an in-demand actor. (laughs) And he was in really big Hollywood movies like Wedding Crashers in those big comedies and and romantic comedies like um, Meet the Parents and stuff, too. He's a supporting character there. So his career was taken off, as was Anderson's. Uh, This is an ensemble cast here, arguably led by Royal Tenenbaum himself, Gene Hackman, but also featuring Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, the Wilsons, and Gwyneth Paltrow, with Danny Glover and Bill Murray also along for the ride. Some uh, key contributors here that I wanted to mention, because I know we'll talk about it, just in terms of Anderson's visual style also. Robert Yeoman, his longtime cinematographer, and Dylan Tickner, who I think is one of his, I I haven't double-checked this, but one of his uh, editing partners as well. Christian, any, uh, anything you want to fit in just in terms of like a detail about this movie before we get into the review here? It's very yellow. Very yellow. Is it? I feel like it's not always very yellow. It's pretty yellow. I guess now the suicide scene is on my mind and that seems very blue. So that's, it's, it's messing with my, my mind's eye here. <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean the way that it looks, right? Yes, yes I do. But that cool. scene also looks blue. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Christian, let's just get into it. Here is your opening question for the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, really, I just wanted your thoughts on the title, actually. I think it's interesting that the whole family, of course, is the Tenenbaums, but it's not just that they are some kind of regal family. It's that Royal himself is the the father and the estranged patriarch. He's a Royal Tenenbaum and therefore the movie is The Royal Tenenbaums almost like they're some kind of sports team. So I'm curious. Why do you think Wes and Owen called it The Royal Tenenbaums as opposed to The Tenenbaums or something else? I mean part of it was a riff on on another family that went into decline movie and that's the Magnificent Ambersons. True. The, the Orison Welles movie. So part of it was kind of uh, given as an homage to them, although the Magnificent Ambersons, Magnificent is not the name of the main Amberson. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, in the Royal Tenenbaums, it, it, there's, there's almost like a, there isn't an apostrophe S at the end of it. <laughs> so it's not that they belong to Royal. That being said, it's, you're seeing how he has messed up the family. And yet, 
in how messed up they are. It's one of the, it's, what's that stupid cliche? Hurt people hurt people. That is exactly the cliche, yes. And and then, um, despite that, though, if you're hurt, you're sometimes, it doesn't make you less of a human being because all people are hurt. So I think it's one of those outlining through the hurt that Royal Tenenbaum has caused, the, also the innate beauty that is within the other characters. Yeah, I think that's good to call out right at the beginning here, especially as you've already commented on the themes and how deep they go in this movie, especially relative to other Anderson films. The the tension between wanting Royal in their lives for each of these family members and wanting nothing to do with him because he's such a <laughs> such a cad, for lack of a better word. You know, it, that's a lot of wor- what the movie is working with. Um, we didn't mention the, the premise here, so if you miss the Royal Tenenbaums or you forget... Uh, the Tenenbaums are a family. At the very beginning of the movie, Royal leaves the family and leaves them with their mother, Ethelene, who raises the three children, Chaz, Richie, and Margot, who is, of course, adopted, and it's constantly commented on that she is so, as geniuses in their respective How fields. How dare she be adopted? How dare she? Chaz becomes a math whiz and business guru. Richie becomes a champion tennis player and not so good painter and Margot becomes an accomplished playwright and world traveler and eventually they all grow up and royal inserts himself back into the family's life by announcing that he has cancer and wants to use his time remaining to reconnect with his kids all of whom of course have hit snags in their own lives and are not living up to the genius status they once held as as young people And we get to see the ways that Royal has individually hurt all three of these kids. I think Anderson sketches out, and Wilson, as his co-writer, sketch out the different, like, core problems with Chaz, Richie, and Margot. And we also see how all of those different problems are redeemed. Not, Not so much that it feels fake or unearned even if it does feel a little bit tidy at the way that the script is structured, I think, but it's a nice conceit and it, uh, it, it makes sense why they ultimately called this movie what they did. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's a good way to start it all out. And, and it, it's an interesting premise. A man who wants to, okay, he, here's the thing though. He only wants to reconnect with the family because he hates the fact that his wife, because they never divorced is now in love with someone else. Yes, this is true. Danny Glover plays Henry Sherman, who's Ethelene's longtime accountant, and has been biding his time as she has entertained different men in her life, although it seems like never any serious romantic involvement. And while all of the kids are dealing with their own personal and professional problems, Ethelene also is dealing with Henry's marriage proposal to her near the beginning of the movie. And once Royal catches wind of this, it spurs him to get get back involved with the family. I think I've realized what my major issue with the movie is. Your major issue with the movie, Christian. Which, uh, I think... Let, let, let me say this real quick before you spell okay. it out. So, just in general, the Royal Tenenbaums is kind of... Is beloved for a few of the things that you've identified. Those yes. deep themes, the rich characters, the almost absurdist but very dry sense of humor and anderson continually honing his visual style now in his third movie after bottle rocket 
and and Rushmore. So that, and I'm pretty sure Gene Hackman's performance is pretty widely beloved too. So I'm I'm curious in in light of some of those generally accepted positives, where you disagree, or what stood out to you as a bigger negative than maybe you picked up on the first time you watched the movie. I I, I think my favorite scene of this movie, and and it's weird to say this, is how it it's how they tackle with uh, Richie's mental depression, and how it is that they tackle with his suicide attempt. For example, he gets rushed to the hospital and he says he left a suicide letter. Someone says, is it dark? And his response is, of course it is. It's a suicide letter, which might be the best line in this movie. (laughs) There's a lot of good zingers in this movie, but that is it's up there. Um, and it, it's one of those where you're going to be absurdist about this absolutely awful thing, but that's because you have no other idea how to tackle it, which is the way that you tackle it by talking around it, making comedy about it, but you're still trying to present the fact that there's something off here. I, 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 I told you that. I, I forgot how racist Royal Tenenbaum was. And I think that is the thing that actually stops me from liking this movie more. Because at no point are his racist jabs kind of addressed. And not even in jest. He calls Danny Glover, who is, by the way, doing a fantastic performance in this movie. But he calls him... Coltrane and then he says that if he wants to he can speak jive too and that and that he can do nothing about it and the major issue with that is not only is it never addressed but when you take it to the beginning of the movie is Royal Tenenbaum upset because his wife is now in love with Henry or is he upset because he is she is in love with Henry, who's black. And yeah, I do think a weakness of the movie is that that goes, that goes mostly unexamined. And Anderson is, he's often criticized for the lack of uh, diversity in his casts, where Danny Glover is one of the only, one of the only uh, major black characters that I can think of from his earlier movies. And, you know, there's this other opportunities that Anderson has, like the Darjeeling Limited, which is a movie set almost entire or set almost entirely in India, but it's about three white guys in India. And that's a movie where I don't think it's a racist movie, but again, it's about three white guys traveling to India for their spiritual enlightenment. And so Danny Glover getting to play a strong character here, I think helps kind of balance out some of that typical Anderson Andersonian criticism and if I can say anything in defense of the movie, I think it's just pretty clearly understood that Royal is not a good person. Yes. And despite all of the the redemption that he does find, I think, by the end of the movie, and the good things that he does do, especially once he starts to atone for the bad things that he has done, I think we do see that his behavior is not excused and must be atoned for. But like you said this specific problem of him being racist towards his 
his ex-wife or <laughs> for most of the movie uh just separated wife because they never got a divorce after 20 years or however long it's been um his, his ex-wife's new romantic partner it is a little bit unfortunate or a lot of it unfortunate really that this is just not commented on nobody really calls him out for this that is what keeps me from loving the movie but i think it was good that i saw it with someone because them like honestly he asked me when we were done watching the movie if we could see the trailer for asteroid city and so it it's it's undeniable the skill and quirkiness is a, a is is a term that has been used so often with Wes Anderson it's not even funny anymore. But not just the quirkiness, how he basically asks his actors to be devoid of all intonation when it comes to speaking. And it is through that dryness that you don't need to worry that much about you don't need to worry that much about subtext it it's just what the text itself is saying um, yeah his his scripts are are often funny i think yeah <laughs> and, but, but they're not funny because weird, someone but... is saying it no one's trying to hit the punchline yeah it's just funny i think too that in these earlier movies, as you can see him also refining his style, I know some some critics or some average Joes and Janes have fallen out of favor with Anderson because his later movies have become so hyper-stylized. And That's the, the issue I have with next week's movie. <laughs> there you go. And, and the, the complaints that people have are that he's full of himself or he's overly fussy or he's just kind of interested in making dioramas, not making living, breathing films. And so for those critiques, which maybe we can engage another time, I think you can still see some of some of that just the, the roughness, <laughs> the coarseness in the Royal Tenenbaums. Because while you are right that most of the characters are lacking intonation, deadpan, pretty controlled, you also have Ben Stiller playing Chaz, who is extremely anxious and high-strung and not screaming all over the movie, but he, his voice raises more than anybody else's. <laughs> he's When we first see him as an adult, he's making his two sons get out of bed in the middle of the night and do a practice fire drill and timing them. <laughs> he's obviously agitated. So you get to see some counterbalance than what has become one, some of Anderson's preferred performance styles. I think Gene Hackman, too, he's, he's not giving necessarily the same controlled and dry Andersonian performance. His charisma as an actor still comes through, despite him getting some very Andersonian dialogue. All right. Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow. Honestly, I would also say Angelica Houston is amazing, but Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow completely stole this movie for me. <laughs> and they're doing the most Andersonian acting. <laughs> they're, they almost never smile, and they're just <laughs> centered in the frame. <laughs> I love the, the, yeah. the black eyeshadow around Gwyneth Paltrow so that she's kind of... She's not full goth, but you know it's like that goth tint of... I am not happy with the world. 
Yeah, she was she was styled after I and I I got this from uh, from online research, not from just knowing it myself. But she was styled after Nico, who is a one of like Andy Warhol's people, and was this singer and artist in the '60s and '70s. And actually, one of Nico's songs plays in this scene where Richie, who has been sailing around the world, comes back to New York, and he reconnects with Margot for the first time. He's waiting at the bus, or at wherever he gets off his boat, or at the bus stop, I don't know. But Margot gets off a bus to come see him. And it's one of the famous moments from this movie where we're in Richie's perspective, and it slows down as we start to understand his, his feelings for Margot. She's walking in slow-mo, and this song kicks in, and it's a Nico song as well. So something very specific that Anderson is going for with her styling. Wait, at the end of this month, are we doing our top five Wes Anderson movies, or are we ranking the Wes Anderson movies? I'm still kind of going between those, because we, we we both have already seen all of his movies, and so it could be interesting to do our respective top fives and see where we differ. Also might be interesting, I, I've been playing over a couple of ideas, but in that same general idea, I haven't committed to something yet. Okay, okay, cool. Cool, cool. Um, yo... I was not prepared for what Luke Wilson did in this movie. Yeah, Luke Wilson. It, I, and I, I hate to go back to, to the suicide scene, but even right beforehand when he cuts his hair and shaves and just the... Uh, how life has like been sucked out of him. Or when yeah. he's sitting on that hospital bed just reflecting on it all. And it life hasn't put back into him. I mean, people who have been whose lives have been saved from a suicide attempt aren't you know just overly joyous. Maybe they are happy. Maybe they're happy that someone did save them. But it it's like their lives are still difficult, and that's what he's reflecting right there. And I loved it. Yeah, his his struggles with mental illness, I think, you know, if you really wanted to get into the nitty gritty, you could maybe complain about their source because it's heavily implied that his un, unrequited or unresolved feelings for Margot, his adopted sister, are a key reason why he tries to end it all. Because this comes after he finds out with Margot That she's a smoker. <laughs> Yes, with Margot's husband, who's played by Bill Murray, this older man that she's married, they find out via private investigator that she's been very uh, non-committal uh, in her romantic life. Let's let's just say, and I think it affects both of them quite a bit. And so I can understand how somebody may have a problem with the the like source of Richie's problems, but the way that they treat them are very real because. Richie, you know, he's a very, very sincere character. He has gone through crap in his life, but he seems genuine in his love for the family. And there's a scene where he and Chaz are arguing because Chaz is angry about him for siding with Royal in this particular situation. Chaz seems to have the biggest problem with their father. And Richie just keeps telling him, like, I love you. And Chaz is like, stop saying that. Richie's like, I can't, because it's true, because I love you. You're my brother. And has this earnest desire to, I think, to see his family grow and, and come back together at this hard time in his own life as well. And at the time, you know, knowing about Royal's apparent cancer diagnosis. 
and it makes his his pain and his ultimate suicide attempt all the more real because it's it, it doesn't come out of nowhere it's based in this guy's authentic feelings he really does seem quite depressed despite the positivity that he tries to show and we care a lot about this guy and and i I think we don't have to live in fear that he you know he's he's gone um or anything like that anderson doesn't leave us lingering if she's gonna make it but it's a really well done character well done performance i think too i have something else to say about the actual suicide scene itself so if you want to i know i've been chatting for a while about richie so any any thoughts on him in particular i i wish that luke wilson had been able to play more roles because honestly right now the the one of the main roles that comes to mind from him is um he he was one of the one of the main characters part-time lover or no one of the main characters sister's part-time lover in that 70s show gotcha yeah it looks like six episodes here according to his uh his wikipedia and he oh what else is luke wilson oh he was in this absolutely awful thing that i saw which was the 12 mighty orphans <laughs> he's in 12 mighty orphans he's also in the legally blonde movies at least the first he's two. great in legally blonde yeah and, and he really has a moment too at these these late 90s early 2000s after bottle rocket puts him on the map he's in he has a small part in rushmore as well although owen wilson does not appear talk about the suicide scene yeah the one thing i did want to say you know we haven't really gotten to talk much about anderson's visual style but uh rushmore is really where he i think establishes a lot of it but the royal tenenbaums is where it i think is fully solidified and the things that people tend to know about anderson he loves his uh center framing you know where the character or the object or whatever he is focused on in any given shot is focused at the center he loves his his tracking shots he loves his his pan his whip pans and his quick zooms all these little camera tricks that he and robert yeoman have continued to hone in their ongoing collaboration but one thing that really stands out in the in richie's um suicide attempt is we see him again center framing as he is trimming his hair as he's trimming his beard and shaving and when he kind of resolves to do the deed you see this kind of flash of other images coming up real quick and then next thing you know he's lying on the ground and we see another minor character come in and find him and the camera itself is destabilized by this realization where it's one of the only times where the camera moves like naturally i guess i would call it like somebody holding a steady cam is carrying it it like falls off of its axis and then we see him in the ambulance as they're as they're trying to rush him to the hospital and it's back to to andersonian style but i love the way that they use that because it it's like this moment is destabilizing for for richie for us as the viewer this character that we're invested in and it's a great way to just to use visual storytelling to communicate what they're getting at with what's going on in the story no, it absolutely is. The the flashing lights, him. It's not quite a Kubrickian stare, which is when the character is like basically smirking at the audience. Um, for all of y'all who don't know what the Kubrick stare is, uh, if you remember in Queen's Gambit, where she's basically you know tilts head forward and is resting her head on her two hands, that's the Kubrick stare right there. But it's it's kind of like a 
I don't know, the Kubrick resignation. <laughs> yeah, just that, that center framed staring somberly into the mirror, which, of course, also when when he's facing the camera, it just so happens he's staring at us. Now, the what is it? The 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 thing that I also always know Wes Anderson for is for the paintings that he chooses to hang on the walls. <laughs> Indeed. And just this aspect of production design where a lot of times, sometimes it's just full-on orgies. I'm, I'm not kidding. That's not a euphemism in these paintings. Or just randomly naked individuals in these paintings. Or just like a taxidermy bear. and Or, or just 15 child drawings of someone's sister. <laughs> You're talking, of course, about the the wall of bad Margot portraits that young Richie creates. But which are all symmetrically placed. Of course. <laughs> it And it's fascinating because it, it does draw your attention to it. And here it is, there is a point to it. They're all drawings that he made of his sister when he was younger. And they all look awful. And also Margot is doing the same thing in every single painting. Yeah. Yeah, Richie is is not a good painter, and it's it's this foreshadowing of what is to come for all of the children. Because of course, Richie burns out as a tennis player. He has a meltdown on the court after being an otherwise very successful player and quits tennis. Margot is a playwright who has a bunch of plays produced in her teens, in her teenage years, and then she just I I don't know the best way to describe it, but she just leaves the scene. She runs away and she starts living this this sort of vagrant life going from place to place before winding up back in new york and poor Chaz is extremely anxious extremely high strung and extremely safety oriented because we find out that about a year before the events of the movie he loses his wife in a plane crash where he and his sons and the family dog are all on the same flight all of them survive except his wife so they all have these things that have interrupted their uh, their genius lives and Richie's failed <laughs> painting career foreshadows it all. That's that's mainly what I have to say. That's yeah, mainly the, what I have to say. The production design is another hallmark of Anderson's career, and the the level of detail in all of the rooms of this Tenenbaum family home is pretty astonishing. And it's it's not quite at the level of something like the French Dispatch where there are times where you kind of just want to pause the movie and stare at everything that he has built out in this room or just pause and admire the frame because it is so painterly. Like it looks like you could, he wanted to hang this on the wall with the other pictures of naked people and taxidermied bears as Christian has pointed out or Havelinas in this movie's case. But the, I, I just love the way that the, the home itself is designed, but Throughout, I think production design, the sets are used pretty well here. Uh, in terms of the rest of the ensemble, I really want to touch on Gene Hackman, uh, on Royal himself. This movie partially got off the ground because he agreed to star in it. He was okay. one of the, Look, the first to he sign He did up. not want to star in it because Wes Anderson wrote the role specifically for him. And apparently Gene Hackman hates when someone does that. And then when they were... He, like they couldn't meet his fee, and so he would need to do a pay for scale, which basically means you take a scaled percentage of whatever the budget is if you can't meet the A list 
$20 million or wherever it is that it's going to be. And then after that, when they were going to shop it around to other individuals, like I think at one point they were considering, who's that dude from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? <laughs> who's that dude? Who's Gene Wilder? I think they wanted Gene Wilder at one point. And then Gene Hackman was like, no. And that's when he signed on. Shout out to Gene Hackman. Uh, what I read was less about his fee, although I'm 100% confident that was part of it. Uh, it, but also about him not really fully understanding the role of Royal. Of course and, and you don't understand Anderson the role. The role makes no sense. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it makes no sense. In fact, I think it makes a hell of a it lot of sense. It makes no sense for an actor to understand, like, what some of the motivations are. No, no, no. Like, like, the, like the, the, the character is a catalyst for a lot of things. It's a pretty difficult part for an actor to play. Oh, yeah. I mean, a difficult part indeed. And I think Hackman... I mean, I don't know. I don't really know who I would have cast in his place because he just seems so flawlessly cast as Royal Tenenbaum. And this is unfortunately his only collaboration with Wes Anderson. Uh, uh, Hackman would go on to retire from acting and he made fewer and fewer movies as the 2000s went on. uh, And he would ultimately retire in 2004. So this is actually... And I spoke too soon. This is one of the last movies of his that comes out because it comes out December 2001. He has a movie come out in 03 and 04, and then he is off into retirement, aside from narrating a couple documentaries later in his life. So one of his final roles here, and it's a shame because I feel like Anderson really gave him to such a great, meaty part to sink his teeth into. And, and of course, the character has some has some problems and has some... Uh, you know, the racism that we discussed that goes unexamined is just a bit unfortunate from Anderson as a writer at, at this time, at least. But outside of some of those uglier sides of the character, I, there's just so much to love about this scumbag of a guy <laughs> who is kind of a scammer, for lack of a better word. He leaves the family and we find out that he's uh, he's a litigator throughout most of his career. So he's a lawyer, which, of course, is often uh, not admired for its honesty <laughs> as a profession. And ultimately he is undone by his own son because Chad takes him to litigation be- or because <laughs> there's, there's some arcane situation where I think he owes Chaz money back for a business venture or Chaz finds a way to get the house in his mother's name as opposed to Royal's name, something like that. And so Royal goes to prison and is disbarred, which is naturally a source of tension between him and Chaz. And then, of course, I mean, we've not really been worrying too much about spoilers in this particular episode, but about an hour into the movie, we do find out that Royal has been lying about his cancer diagnosis and is not dying at all. He's just been pulling a long con over the family with one of the only characters, only like key characters who we haven't mentioned yet, Pagoda, who is the Indian uh, I guess you would call it servant or valet, I think is what Wikipedia calls him. So the valet to the family. And Pagoda has been helping. He's played by you Kumar Palana, I should say. He's been helping Royal scam the family. And it's. Uh, it's, I, it's just I don't a really understand fun the character of Pagoda. And because at one point Pagoda stabs him. Yes, which is not the first time that Pagoda has stabbed Royal. And it. it there's. Uh, okay. These characters just just don't think and i think a lot of times wes anderson characters just don't think that or at least they don't have second thoughts First i, I thought think that's a better way head. a better way of putting it 
First thought enters head, they must act on it. Very impulsive. Royal certainly thinks, but I don't think he thinks things all the way through. <laughs> and in fact, in, in the very first scene where he re-enters Ethelene's life, she is walking on the sidewalk and he comes up upon her and intimates that he's, he's dying. He's received this diagnosis. And it's a great moment for Angelica Houston as an actress because you can see this this anger and this frustration with Royal, this estranged husband of hers who she can't get rid of, who's just barged back into her life, and she's so mad at him, but then she feels such deep sadness that this person who's so important to her is now dying, and you see that all wash over her face, and she starts to cry, and she leans into him, and then he says, well, I'm, I'm not really dying, and she's <laughs> she gets so mad, and she's like, what are you talking about? And then he lies right back again, and he says, "Well, no, I mean, no, I, I, I do have cancer. I actually I am. I actually am. I actually am. Well, yeah. She knows. She, she goes. Well, are you or aren't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you which, or aren't you? Which and I... so you can see in that moment there where he he has this idea for a plan. Well, okay, if she's gonna get married to someone else, and if my I I, I gotta have some kind of relationship with my kids again, I guess. So here's what I can do. I can fake an illness." Even though it's extremely obvious when you don't die of the illness you allege you have, that your your plan will fall apart. Wait, okay. Owen Wilson is in this movie. Indeed he is. And he's he Eli he's playing, Cash. Yes, the best friend who has a drug addiction. Yes. One of the most casual drug addicted characters in movies. Okay, they haven't Richie has an intervention for him. And and he goes I have a problem. I have to stop. And they all accept it. And then immediately he like runs away. Well, because he says, let me go, you know, pack my things and we'll go. And then he walks out of the room and Pagoda, who is tagged along to this intervention, leans out the window and says, and there he goes. <laughs> Eli is uh, running away. It, it's, I mean, it's, it, he doesn't, he, he kills the family dog. Uh, he, he sure does. Buckley. Rest in peace, Buckley. Buckley gone. <laughs> it's it's just funny that for the second movie after Bottle Rocket that Owen Wilson co-wrote with Wes Anderson has written characters for not only himself and his brother Luke Wilson, but also the third Wilson brother, Andrew Wilson, who, you know, just like there's Chris and Liam Hemsworth and then they have another brother, another Hemsworth brother who's not famous, there is a third Wilson brother, Andrew, who is also in this movie, and he actually plays two parts. Number one, there is a flashback sequence to when Margot goes to find her birth family, and he has a small role as Margot's father, the farmer. And he also, at one point, does commentary over one of Richie's tennis matches, where it's him and Wes Anderson are the, the commentators on that game. Um that was that was that was good commentating. Indeed, it was. But we have uh, a second movie where all three Wilson brothers appear, and none of them are related. <laughs> in this movie, it's about a family. Owen Wilson could have played the Chaz part, or or something, but no, they're, they're in it and completely unrelated. Just a nice touch. Um, Ben Stiller's role not my favorite. Not a fan of Chaz. Not not the biggest one though. I... Are, you, are you a big Chaz head? <laughs> no, Christian. You think of people from Wisconsin. They're cheese heads. Um, I, right. you know, I, I think one of another one of the small problems for me with the Royal Tenenbaums is that 
the ensemble is not always well balanced and so it has this it has a structure we haven't even talked about this it has a structure of sort of a novel where at the very beginning we see a book that of course is not real called the royal tenenbaums and it's the title card for the movie and then throughout we see chapter one two three and there will literally be what's about to happen next in the movie written as if it were written in a novel and so there will be a scene where it's like royal is walking with ethylene down like down the path he taps his cane and and asks ethylene and then it cuts to them walking where royal has his cane he's asking ethylene a question um oh my gosh i lost my train of thought (laughs) (laughs) talking for too long about the literary structure of the movie so yeah chapters he he likes his books he likes his books wes anderson really likes his books (laughs) oh no Christian, where where was I going with that? <laughs> Bro, this is not something I can answer for you. <laughs> oh no! Anyway, he has a literary structure to the to the movie. It's really fun, and I like it. Alec Baldwin does narration throughout, and it's funny. <laughs> this movie apparently inspired Arrested Development, which is uh, also about a dysfunctional family with a naughty patriarch who goes to prison (laughs) and features narration although this time that time it was by ron howard (laughs) i forget that ron howard is all over rest of the element indeed did you know that james cameron's a major fan of ron howard i i did not but it doesn't surprise me i mean i feel like our guy big jim's not exactly scouring the depths of cinema uh he's probably watching big budget movies and looking for ideas to steal so, uh, he apparently visited Ron Howard on set once, and he like everyone loved Ron Howard because apparently he's the nicest director to have on set. And he goes, "Maybe I should be nicer on set." <laughs> and then he said, "Nah, I'm not gonna <laughs> do that." Actually, you know, uh, I feel like I heard somewhere that him having—I mean, he has a lot of children—but as his children grew up, and he was trying to actually be a, a present parent in their lives. I think i saw somewhere that that like softened him up a bit that's why avatar 2 is so about the theme of family and why the other ones will be but we'll see anything else we need to do to discuss you were asking me about if i like Chaz or not there we go i remembered so it has this literary structure one of the problems i have with the movie is that depending on what chapter we're in it will leave certain characters just off doing whatever the hell they're doing and I think Chaz gets the the worst of it, where there's a lot of focus on Richie and his depression, or Richie and Margot's relationship, or all of the disparate characters. And Chaz maybe gets the least screen time of the three siblings. I feel like maybe Margot also kind of gets short stick at the short shrift, I should say, at the beginning, where she becomes more prominent near closer to the end of the movie. But I, I think that. Chaz's character is pretty funny and i actually think he has a a a very sweet moment near uh near the conclusion actually where after buckley the dog who is Chaz and his son's family dog he is uh accidentally killed in a car crash driven by a drug addled <laughs> eli cash royal is speaking with the fire department and eventually walks up to Chaz with the fire department Dalmatian who he has bought off of the firemen so that Chaz and his boys can have a new family dog and they have this they have this moment 
where he and Chaz have been so confrontational and so antagonistic to each other the whole movie. Chaz is clearly having the biggest problem with Royal and the loss of his wife is is, dra- is dragging on his mental health, as you can imagine. And they have this moment where Royal says, like, you know, got you a dog. Chaz says, oh, that's so nice of you. Like, the boys will appreciate it. They kind of start crouching down to pet the dog. And he says, what's his name? And Royal goes, his name's Sparkplug. And they short, sort of share a laugh. And then Chaz gets quiet and starts to break up a little bit and looks at his dad and says, it's been a tough year, dad. And Royal responds, I know, son. And th- that is their moment of connection. And from there, you know that fences have been mended. Bridges are being built back. And it was just this incredibly touching moment to put a capper on on this relationship, strained relationship between these two that uh, is really sealing some of Royal's redemption that he's been seeking uh, despite all of his bad behavior for most of the movie. Before we finish our discussion on Royal Tenenbaums, know that this is the fourth movie in a row where we have discussed incest. <laughs> that is a very bad way of putting it, Christian. <laughs> Because the previous three movies of the Star Wars original trilogy, where one movie is building to the incest, the second movie features a sister kissing her brother, who she does not know is her brother. And she the third does. Movie, if, you, if, you, if you think... According to the third movie, she somehow always knew and just thought it would be really funny to kiss him and really tick off Han Solo. So this, this is a more uncomfortably incestuous relationship i would say which we barely discussed and it feels like we're not going to but they're adopted as we're reminded a thousand times throughout the movie so it's okay margo is adopted at least so it's technically okay which is actually something that royal says to richie isn't that wrong and richie says well technically we're not related by blood which is which is definitely something that you want to say about your choice and romantic partner to your inquisitive parent. Absolutely. It's what I say all the time. Christian, Royal Tenenbaums sounds like still recommended by you, although maybe a little less strongly than you expected coming into the episode. Yes. it's it, it Yes. It used to be very, very high up in my Wes Anderson rankings. I'm not sure if it's going to stay there. I'm going to have to revisit some other movies. I, I definitely know what my bottom is. My, I don't think anything's going to touch my bottom. Uh, interesting. I look forward to learning more about your your bottom, Christian. Mm. <laughs> and um, I think my top two are... F- well, my top one is firmly my top one, but I'm going to double-check my top my second. My top one, I think, is pretty firmly my top one. But we shall see. Because we're talking about it next week on the show. hey So, folks, that is The World Ten and Bombs. Highly recommended by me and softly recommended by Christian, previously more recommended by Christian of the past. It is not streaming anywhere right now, unfortunately, but of course you can rent it wherever you rent movies. Maybe can get it from your local library as well. Next week on the show, we're talking about my favorite Wes Anderson movie and the one that started it all, and also a movie that Christian badmouthed earlier on this episode, and that is The Grand Budapest Hotel. I am pretty sure I have not seen this movie since I saw it in theaters. I, I, the more that I think about it, I feel convinced that I've rewatched it at least once. I'm pretty sure I watched it in a college class. So I've seen it twice, but I'll be revisiting it for the first time in quite a long time. Uh, 
once again, unfortunately, not streaming anywhere right now. I think there's a chance that as we get closer to, re to the release of Asteroid City that some of his movies may become more available on streaming services, especially something like the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is more recent. But, of course, it is available to rent basically anywhere you can rent movies, or you can come to my apartment and watch the Blu-ray that I have, and we'll have a jolly good time together. Christian, any uh, any any thoughts? Actually, let's just say on on early Wes Anderson, because uh, of course the Grand Budapest is making quite a jump. We go from 2001 of the Royal Tenenbaums to 2014 of the Grand Budapest Hotel. So, anything brief you want to say about other early Anderson films before we wrap this episode up? I mean, not necessarily early, but you see his foray into animation with Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes, and then also 2009. With with Moonrise Kingdom, which is the movie right before Grand Budapest Hotel, um, those two kind of signal his desire to work with some younger actors. Are you you have no feelings for Ari and Uzi, who are the the two sons of Chaz in the Royal Tenenbaums, Christian? <laughs> okay, they are not the center of the movie. <laughs> Although they do get a great montage with their grandpa that we should have talked about during the review proper. But yes, it is true. Uh, Bottle Rocket. Uh, Rush, Rushmore is about a, a precocious young high school aged man, but that, younger, younger than that for, for Moonrise Kingdom, for sure. Uh, that's it, really, from in terms of uh, young Wes Anderson movies. He, he gets quirkier. That he does. I, Rushmore is another one that I would like to revisit. I own that, actually, from the Criterion Collection, along with Bottle Rocket, which you gave me for my birthday one year. Very kind of you. Maybe it was Christmas. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it was my birthday. Good. We're both around the same time. Yes, yes. But Rushmore, I, I think, is pretty great. And I know there are some people who are, like, big Wes Anderson fans who think that that is actually, like, secretly his best movie. There are some people who think Royal Tenenbaums is, is his best movie. Nobody really thinks that about The Life Aquatic or The Darjeeling Limited, unfortunately. But Fantastic Mr. Fox definitely has its fans, as is Moonrise Kingdom. So it'll be interesting to see what homework we've fit in by next week when we get to the Grand Budapest Hotel. And folks, that is our show. So, of course, if you've been listening this long, thanks so much. We greatly appreciate it. There are a few things that you can do to support the show, in fact, and help us grow and reach new listeners. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if applicable. Helps us grow, reach new listeners, find favor on those platforms. It would be so nice to see more reviews and such roll in. So please do subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. You can also send us an email to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. Uh, that is our email inbox where we are regularly checking things to see if we get any listener feedback in there. We love to feature relevant listener emails on the show. And if you've got a Wes Anderson movie that you want to make sure we cover, maybe you want us to go back in time and talk about Rushmore, or maybe you want us to do an animation episode on Fantastic Mr. Fox or Isle of Dogs after the Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't know, but if you've got something that you want us to talk about, let us know at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We're all getting excited for Asteroid City, so hopefully you join us too. And if you do see it when it hits theaters, let us know your thoughts. So we're going to be talking about it later on in the show this month and would love to know some listener feedback about that brand new movie later on this month. Lastly, you can follow myself and the show on Twitter and Christian on Instagram, as well as the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. I am still posting reviews for all of the movies that I watched while isolating with my case of COVID-19, and I fit in a lot of movies, so you can keep up with my output there. 
Christian, you see anything interesting recently aside from the Royal Tenenbaums? Uh, I'm watching Across the Spider-Verse again tomorrow. And I am very jealous of you. You cannot go see new movies in the theater when you have COVID. That is irresponsible. <laughs> okay, that being said, you've been watching a lot more movies than me. That, like, I, I, that is my, very true. My movie intake has gone down. Basically, if it's not in the theater, I can't watch it right now. We're like the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> right i have watched so many so many non-2023 movies i watch a decent amount of ones that are available on streaming at least but i'm watching so many non-new releases and you've been keeping up with so many it's so impressive so maybe one day i'll, I'll oh we'll, wait we'll switch roles i saw past lives recently oh how was it I'm jealous. The lead actress in that movie is absolutely electrifying. She she shout out is, She she is she's absolutely wonderful. Now, um the movie's been getting a lot of buzz. I mean, some people definitely think that it is a lock for that it is a lock for best picture next year. Uh it it's the directorial debut of Celine Song. Now, look. <laughs> I I, I Christian's it's. I don't think mode. it's. What? Christian's going hater mode. No, it's not hater mode. I. 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 It's. It's not the most. Um. Not a lot happens in this movie. But. It's a very romantic, very heartfelt film, that e- even though the pl- there's not much plot to it, I still find myself wanting, Greta Lee to succeed. Interesting, Christian. Four stars from you on Letterboxd. I checked while you were talking. So no hate coming from Christian. All love. But I do have to see it myself, and maybe it'll show up later on when we get to our top five movies of the year so far. Anyway, the end of this episode is dragged out long enough. So, Christian, I'm not going to ask you if you have any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home because you just provided them. So, until next time, I'm Scott, he's Christian, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.